you want to get out your sermon outline, and there is a major typo on it because I forgot to change the title from last week and didn't realize it until after I printed 120 of them. Um, so the title is Setting the Stage for Conflict. Actually, this was the title from two weeks ago uh, when I preached last. And uh, so uh, you'll want to make that pen and ink change. Setting the Stage for Conflict. That is uh, what we'll be talking about today. I know you've all been reading ahead and have found this to be a dynamic and exciting uh, passage of Scripture uh, as God introduces you to uh, about a hundred new names. So it's, uh, you know, this is one that you just as soon skip over. Um, mostly because you can't pronounce most of them, and the ones you do pronounce, you're pretty sure you got wrong. Um, but uh, we're going to deal with it. I'm not going to read all of the uh, verses. I'm going to skip a lot of the names and, and sort of read what's in between uh, the names, and we'll do that as we go along. I will read uh, the beginning, but let's open with a word of prayer uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures, for making us your people. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for guiding us when we can least understand. Father, there's every reason to believe that few of us have ever read this passage. Certainly few of us have studied it in any detail, and yet you have something in your word for your people this morning. Pray that you would remind us of just how inspired and just how applicable your word is, even as we look at this passage. For this, we need your grace. We ask for that and ask that you would give us the desire and ability uh, to learn from you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So even if you're one of those people that uh, can read through the Bible every year, um, I bet that Genesis 36 is a chapter that you don't spend much time on. It's one of those chapters that makes you wonder, if you're honest, why it's in the Bible. There are a bunch of names here which mean nothing to us, and about whom we can learn almost nothing. Uh, they lived and died almost 4,000 years ago, linked together by the common thread of being Esau's descendants. In the first place, and perhaps with the greatest difficulty, is that by the time you learn how to pronounce all of the names, there wouldn't be any more time for the rest of the message. But there is one thing that we can say. We are interested in genealogies. All of us are interested in genealogies. Of course, we're only interested in our own genealogy. But nevertheless, we're all interested in genealogies. You know, have you ever noticed the look on other people's faces when you start to talk about your genealogy? You know, or uh, have you noticed the feeling you get when they begin to speak about theirs? You know, are they anxious to know, for example, that you have all the necessary papers in hand so that your daughters can grow up to be members of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Or maybe for you, it's the Society of the Cincinnati. Or perhaps even that exclusive ancient and honorable artillery society of Boston. Perhaps not. Anyway, this chapter is a chapter on the genealogies. And interestingly enough, 
this information in Genesis 36 must be important. Because it's repeated again, almost all of it, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And so I know what you're thinking, Dave. Suppose you got to preach on 1 Chronicles next week. What would you say then about this genealogy? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that I'm not planning on preaching this genealogy two weeks in a row, and that's mercy. But it must be important because the Holy Spirit has included this information not once, but twice in the Holy Inspired Word of God. So we need to figure out why it's so important. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, but the big one is the brotherhood of Jacob and Esau lives on in the relationship between Israel and Edom. And that relationship is never forgotten in the Old Testament. The painstaking detail of Genesis 36 and 1 Chronicles 1 is a witness to the importance of the kinship, the family relationship, which existed between Israel and Edom. Now, the usual pattern in the book of Genesis is when a, a new stage of the story is about to begin. They try to tie up all the, the loose ends. There'll be a chapter or a section in which sort of the collateral branch of the family is completed, and then it's dropped, and then the main story is picked up again. So in Genesis 37, we'll pick up the story of Joseph's life, and the remainder of the book of Genesis is largely a story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. But in the meantime, we have to dispose of the collateral branch of Esau. And then Joseph's story will be the subject of the remainder of the book. Now, the last chapter, Genesis 35, closed with the words, Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. By the way, I'm going to live that long. Just wanted to let you know. Uh, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Esau and Jacob join hands once more at the burial of their father, and then go their separate ways without, so far as we know, their paths ever crossing again. And so now when we turn to Genesis 36, we have the records of the generations of Esau. Now Esau is Edom. Remember back in the beginning, that was one of the names that was given to Esau. And so Edom and Esau are the same. Five times in this chapter, that point is made that Esau is Edom. Esau, the man whose generations are listed here, is a successful man by worldly standards. He's the founder of a dynasty and a nation, the father of chieftains and kings. He enjoyed financial prosperity. He had beautiful women in his harem. He had political power. He's a famous man and in his time and for hundreds of years after. And he's a nice guy. He's uh, the kind who would make a great neighbor or friend. But Esau lived for this world. And in so doing, he failed miserably where it mattered the most. And that's with God. I think this chapter is in the Bible for at least two reasons. There may be more, but at least these two. First, Moses is writing to people who are about to conquer the land of Canaan. And the Edomites, Esau's descendants, lived on the borders of that land. And when Israel had sought to pass over their land on the way to Canaan, 
the Edomite king refused to let them pass, even though Moses promised to pay for all the food and water that they can consume. And uh, you can read that story in Numbers chapter 20. And perhaps once Israel was established, someone could say, you know, we remember what they did. And maybe we should go teach those Edomites a lesson. And God commanded Israel at this time not to provoke Edom and said he would not give Israel any of their land. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 2. It says, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Remember, Esau went and settled at Seir. And the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So Israel needed to know who these people were so they would treat them as the Lord had commanded. Second reason for this uh, chapter, I think, is to make Israel and us consider the outcome of Esau's life, especially as it's contrasted with Jacob's life. And there's a real contrast here uh, in Genesis 36, which outlines the wealth, the success, and the power of Esau and his descendants And then Genesis 37, uh, verse 1, which says, with understatement, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. That's it. So while Esau is out conquering the land of Eden, founding a nation, fathering kings, and being a great worldly success, Jacob is quietly living in the land that he didn't own, the land where his fathers had sojourned. And even later on in history, while Esau's descendants, <coughs> excuse me, are mighty chieftains, famous in their day, Jacob's descendants will be down in Egypt, enslaved to Pharaoh. As always, God put this story uh, in the scriptures for a reason. So with that said, let's jump into the text and see what it says. Turn with me to Genesis 36, starting at verse 1 where we discover the issue of family conflict. Family conflict. It says, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. We're just going to read the first nine verses. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimat, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebiot. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimat bore, bore Raul, and Oholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir 
Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. So Esau is turning away from God as seen right away in verse 2 where we're reminded he took his wives from the daughters of the Canaanites. Esau's grandfather, Abraham, had made his servant swear uh, by the Lord, actually his great-grandfather, made his servant swear by the Lord back in Genesis 24 that he would not... No, grandfather, I got it right. Anyways, Abraham made his servant swear that he would not take a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites. He said, you cannot do that. And in Genesis 26, Esau shrugs off his godly grandfather's strong warning and chooses his wives from the Canaanites. And later we read uh, that it brings uh, Isaac and Rebekah great hardship. And later in Genesis 28, seemingly still lacking spiritual discernment, he takes a wife from the descendants of Ishmael. However, it's significant when you get to Esau's story, there's no mention of barren wives when it comes to Esau's line. Abraham had God's promise of many descendants, but his wife Sarah was barren for many years. Isaac has the same promises, but Rebekah couldn't conceive for the first 20 years of their marriage. Jacob's favorite wife was also barren for a long time. But here in verses 4 through 6, we see Esau's wives bore him sons and daughters with no trouble. Esau represents the natural man, strong, capable, independent, able to cope with life's problems with his own resources, who needs to depend on God for things when you can take care of yourself. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their barren wives actually represent God's way of working. He humbles our pride by shutting us up with problems that we're incapable of solving on our own. Problems like barren wives in the face of promises that will make us into a great nation. And then when we call on him, he proves himself mighty to save. Now, I have to note, there's two textual problems in this chapter. Uh, and uh, both of them concern people's names. First of all, the wives' names present a problem because the names that are given in earlier chapters don't match the names given here. In Genesis 26, it said that Esau married Judith, daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Bezimat, daughter of Elon the Hittite. Genesis 28, he adds, Mahalot, um, daughter of Ishmael, sister of Nabiot. And here in Genesis 36, there's different daughters' names connected with each father. And the best solution to this problem is that the wives probably changed their names, took different names. We've already seen that happens a lot in the scriptures. Either when they move from Canaan to Edom or with changes in them over time. Uh, we already know that Esau became known as Edom, which means red over the incident with the red stew. And names aren't given just because they sound nice, they have meaning. And so perhaps Bezimat, which means the perfumed one, later took on the name uh, Ada, the adorned one, as her focus shifted from perfume to jewelry or clothes. Um, 
Mahela is the musical one. She takes over as the perfume queen and changes her name to Bezimat when she develops a formula for uh, homemade Chanel number no. five. And Judith, who is the praised one, is actually a young teenager when Esau married her, and apparently she grows tall and becomes Oholabama, which means tall and stately. The thing to notice about the names is each of their names focuses on some outward feature of beauty, like attractiveness, appearance, or sensuality. Now, there's a second problem with another name. In Genesis 26, Judah's father is called Beri the Hittite. Now, Beri literally means well man, as a man of the well, like a water well. It doesn't mean that he's in good health. He's a man of the well. But now in 36, he's called Anah. But it's mentioned that he's the Anah who found the hot springs, hence he could easily be nicknamed Beri, uh, the well man. Also, Anah or Beri is called the Hittite in Genesis 26, a Hivite in verse 2 here, and a Horite in verse 20. Now, Hittite's a broad term, roughly equivalent to Canaanite. Hivite's a branch of the Hittites, and Horite means cave dweller. So the terms aren't really contradictory, but explanatory, much as we might refer to the same man as an American, a Virginian, and a Loudoner. So what's the family conflict here? In a nutshell, it's simply this. Esau is the anti-Jacob. Esau is the anti-Jacob. There's a constant comparison being made between the two. Jacob has four wives. And although there must have been many wives to fill out this extensive genealogy, there's four listed by name. Three of them are Esau's. And then in verse 12, we have the fourth. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And that's important. And we'll come back to that. And we know that Jacob has 12 sons since they went on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But what we see here in this Jacob-Esau comparison is Esau also has 12 sons. And they were to become 12 tribes as well. Actually, it, members, uh, it appears there's 14 tribes because two of the grandsons sort of developed their own tribe. So you have uh, four women in both uh, genealogies and 12 sons. And everything we're told about the blessings of Jacob we're given the reverse image in the life of Esau. So this family conflict, you know, we sort of set up the two sides. You know, there's the two patriarchs, there's the four women, there's the 12 sons. Um, they're in uh, land that's going to be right next to each other. And this family conflict grows and becomes an all-consuming obsession. This is the Hatfield and the McCoys of the ancient Near East. And that's because next we're going to see this family conflict grow into tribal conflict. Tribal conflict, that's the second blank there. I'm going to read verse 15 and then jump to verse 40. It says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And then it lists them all. And then we jump all the way down to verse 40. And it says, these are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. And skipping to the end, 
These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. Now this tribal conflict between these two people groups, Israel and Edom, goes all the way back to Genesis 27 and the particular blessings that were given to them by Isaac. And I have a slide to show you. Can we put that up? Okay, don't know how well you can see that, but you see one is the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob. That's on the left side. And the other is the blessing to Esau on the right side. And they're almost, they're not exact, but almost reverse images. Blessing to Jacob is God will give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. And to Esau, he says, away from the fatness of the earth and away from the dew of heaven. I already gave that to your brother. And then he tells Jacob, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And then to Esau, we hear, by your sword, you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you go restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Then Jacob uh, gets the additional blessing of cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. They're dramatically different blessings. In fact, Esau's is almost an anti-blessing. Look at all this great stuff I gave to Jacob. You don't get that. Thanks, Dad. Esau's blessing is notably void of the spiritual blessings that are given to Jacob. It prophesied where and how he would live and that he would be in servitude to his brother and one day that servitude would be broken. And as we see in this chapter, Esau's sins brought him substantial physical and material prosperity but dramatically reduced spiritual blessings. And with all the problems that Jacob has, and, and we've seen, he's got lots of issues. He, in the end, he still has God. And Esau doesn't. Esau gets all the stuff that Jacob wants, but not God. Jacob has to give up all the stuff that he wants, but he gets God. It's dramatically different. You can take that slide down now. Thank you. And of course, we're told by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, talking about Esau, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And my question is, does that refer to all of Esau's life? It is, is this his, uh, the epitaph of his life? Or does it just apply to those events early in his life when he sold his birthright and uh, lost his blessing? A time when his life was characterized by immorality and unholy uh, conduct. A period in which he acquired his Canaanite and Ishmaelite wives. It's pretty much a graceless time in his life. And of course, then we have, regarding Esau, the probably the most famous statement about him that comes from Romans 9. And there it says, not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we have essentially, there's actually one more example in the New Testament. Three times Esau is mentioned, it's all negative. Now, if the Apostle Paul is using this statement to illustrate God's sovereign choice, his particular individual election of Jacob over Esau, we have to remember that it's a a quotation from the book of Malachi, which is a centuries later oracle of judgment against the Edomites for their abuse of Israel. The full quote reads, Malachi 1, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's still true. If you look up Edomite on your map and go there, it's desert. Nothing but a few Bedouin tribes passing through and some military outposts of the modern nation of Jordan. Isaac's blessings all the way back in Genesis 27 set the stage for constant conflict between the brothers and their descendants. And this conflict carries on for centuries. One of Esau's descendants, his grandson uh, 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 Amalek, I told you we get back to him, He's going to father another nation to oppose Israel, the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the neighbors of the Edomites, and they would surround Israel to the south and southeast, and both were to become bitter enemies of the chosen people. And the Amalekites fought Israel before they even got to the promised land when Joshua was leading them into battle with the famous story of Moses holding up his staff with the help of Aaron and her, and at the end of that battle in Exodus 17, we read, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And we see the Amalekites rise up against Israel in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel. And they're finally exterminated under King Hezekiah. And the fulfillment of the promise of God In Deuteronomy 25, right before they go into the promised land, God commands them, wipe them from the face of the earth. That's a paraphrase. That's basically what he says. And most notably, King Saul loses his kingship because he fails to destroy the Amalekites. And he preserves Agag, the king of Amalek. And in every boy's favorite passage, we see Samuel save the day. 1 Samuel 15, 33. Guys, you need to memorize this. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's awesome. Because it's an example of what God does to sin. I just want to camp there. I love that story. I you know, total depravity is my spiritual gift. I don't know what to say. 
But the result of Esau's genealogy, however, we see is catastrophic. The bare bones of this genealogy demonstrate positively Esau prospered way beyond the Israelites so that while Israel is suffering famine and migration and captivity in Egypt, Edom is expanding and developing a succession of kings. But negatively, this comes at the price of profound assimilation. Remember, Israel was told not to assimilate. Don't mix, don't intermarry with those peoples. You need to stay as this chosen people. Esau goes in the opposite direction. In the first section of this genealogy, intermarriage is tentative, and the native wives are actually courted the status not of wives but of concubines. But in the next section, starting at verse 15, indicates that intermarriage has become the norm. And the indigenous people get higher status. And by the third section, starting at verse 20, Esau has displaced the native people, has married into the leading family. And the picture here is one by invasion of Esau's clan, followed by the absorption of all of the native population into the descendants of Esau. And thus this assimilation moves into high gear. And finally, in the last section, starting at verse 40, we emphasize the spheres of ownership and influence of the leading Edomite families all the way to Elah on the Gulf of Aquaba. You look at a map, it's a huge chunk of territory. Esau is flourishing by the sword in Edom, just as Isaac's blessing had predicted. And tragically, Esau's descendants become the chronic enemies of Israel. Some 500 years after Esau's departure, Moses is leading Israel's exodus from Egypt. The Edomites refuse the peaceful overture of Moses and won't allow Israel to pass through their territory. Again, you can read that in Numbers, Numbers 20. Years later, when Saul becomes king of Israel, he has to fight them, 1 Samuel 14. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. King David subdued them for a time. The most infamous abuse came during Israel's deportation to Babylon. When the exile started, the Edomites blocked the crossroads. There was a little bit left of both people. Both peoples had large part been wiped out at that point. But the remaining Edomites, they blocked the roads. They cut off the route of the fugitive Israelites who were trying to escape from the Babylonian armies. And they delivered them back to the Babylonians. And it forced the prophet Obadiah to denounce them. Obadiah 1 says, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in their day of distress. And afterwards we'll see the fierce criticism of Malachi and the entire book of Obadiah, which actually isn't that big, um, comes against the Edomites. And the prophet Jeremiah lays a particularly harsh prophecy against them. In Jeremiah 49, he says, Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, 
No man shall dwell there. No man shall sojourn in her. The idea of this land is condemned. Of course, we have the plaintive cry of the Israelites in Psalm 137. They demand that God bring judgment against Edom. This is in the scripture, but listen to what they say. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's tough stuff. And that's just a taste of how intense this conflict came between these two peoples. And I like to say it got better, but it doesn't. The family conflict grew into a tribal conflict, and tribal conflict explodes into full-blown cultural conflict. Starting at verse 31, cultural conflict. It says, these are the kings. Remember, we started with sons, then chiefs, now kings, who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And it lists them there. There's eight of them, and in, in each uh, description, it says, you know, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so from this place, reigned in his place. Eight times it says reigned in his place. We have a description of this line of eight kings. And the unique thing about them is some of them are from the native peoples. They come in. And they become king of Edom, and they're not even Edomites. And this section's not a genealogy. It's a list of these eight kings who reigned in Edom prior to the monarchy in Israel. Edom became wealthy and powerful long before Israel. Indeed, it prospered. And again, it's presented in contrast to Israel. It's going to be years before Israel has a king. And even when they get a king, it comes with a grave warning. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, I'm not going to read all this, but basically every, all the elders come to Samuel and say, your sons aren't any good, which they weren't. We need a king. We want to be like all the other nations and have a king. And uh, Samuel prays, and God says to him, obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Basically, he said, God being king doesn't cut it. We need a real flesh and blood king. And so uh, Samuel says, uh, okay, but if you get a king, it's going to take your sons, it's going to take your daughters, it's going to take your flocks, it's going to take your grain, it's going to take your manservants, it's going to take your, your female servants. Um, and in that day, you will cry out because of the king whom you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And then it finishes, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, Edom had become prosperous and successful and they had kings who ruled and Israel had none of that. And Israel is supposed to depend on the sovereign Lord to take care of them and rule over them. But the cultural lure of the Edomites is just too 
strong. And Israel is the one supposed to be a set-apart people, different from all the other surrounding nations, as a light to the nations to lead them to God. But because the lure of the culture was so strong, too sensual, too enamored with beauty and success and power, Israel constantly falls away. They follow the surrounding cultures, first in politics, which they're forbidden to do. Then they follow them in their family lives, intermarrying with the surrounding tribes, which they were forbidden to do. And finally, they followed them in their religion, embracing idolatry to the most horrific extremes, even to the point of sacrificing their own children, which they're forbidden to do. The lure of the surrounding culture with its gross idolatry becomes the enemy that Israel could not conquer. And it's all because of idolatry and that in time, they lost their power, they lost their land, they lost their families, they lost their identity as the chosen people, and they're carried off into exile in Babylon. They're defeated by the cultural conflict long before they were defeated in battle. And in this story, the consequences of bad decisions lasted for thousands of years and had horrific effects for hundreds of generations. And I don't think that the time they lived in is all that different from the time that we live in. So what do we do with all this history? Few things mostly having to do with recognizing the truth that already surrounds us, that we often overlook. First application is that conflict doesn't change status. Conflict doesn't change status. By using the word status, I'm not talking about importance, but rather your station in life. As individuals, as family members, as church members, as people who live in neighborhoods, attend some form of school, work in some place of employment, one of the constants in all those areas of life is conflict. You will have conflict. It's virtually impossible to avoid. But it doesn't mean that you can't handle it in a godly fashion and approach it with both wisdom and grace. And most of us find that very difficult to do. So let me give you a few examples. First, when you have conflict, remember, they're still related to you. We have the most conflict with the people we're most committed to. Perhaps that's why conflict is so common in families. When that conflict comes, it's easy to forget that this other person is my brother, my wife, my daughter, when we're in the middle of conflict, we instantly are focused on ourselves and our self-preservation and sometimes simply on winning. And in the process of engaging someone in personal conflict, we come, become oblivious to the fact that that person across from me is someone I'm supposed to love. I think that's why long after we forget about Iraq and Afghanistan, we'll still be talking about the Civil War because it's our family conflict. And whether conflict takes place in your immediate family or your extended family or even with distant cousins, we all have Edomites and Amalekites in our family tree. And we don't like it, but we didn't choose them. And they're still related to you. And as much as you may dislike them, the scriptures call you to love them. And I don't remember who said it first, but I think it's true, although uncommon, and that's the notion that families are built to be repentance laboratories. 
Families are built, you should write this down. Families are built to be repentance laboratories. If you can remember that, I think it would be most helpful. Second thing you should remember when facing conflict is that no matter who the conflict is with, they still live near you. They still live near you. In other words, both parties to the conflict still live in the same world. You still have to work with that person. You still have to, not should, but have to attend worship services with that person. You may still have to share a room and maybe even a bed with that person. Some people you just can't avoid. And rather than have proximity stir us up to rage, it should move us towards reconciliation. I know that sounds way easier than it is to do. Some of you may know, may remember, about a year and a half ago, I had a debate, not a for, uh, argument, but a formal debate with another prominent member of the PCA. And this past January, I had a meeting in Atlanta that was designed to reduce the tensions that exist within our denomination. And this man was there. And I didn't invite him. But nonetheless, he was there. And in the midst of our discussions, he shared that regardless of how things worked out, he wasn't going anywhere. And I immediately jumped in and said, I wasn't going anywhere either. Therefore, we have now made a de facto decision, him and I, to live and work together in the PCA. Now we just had to figure out how to do it. And for a lot of the conflict that we're in, we simply have to figure out how to live together and work together despite our differences. And often, the main problem is we're not willing to do that. We're just not going to be satisfied until that other person leaves. Work, church, school, neighborhood, it doesn't matter. We just want them gone. And we don't understand why God doesn't make that happen. Perhaps God's using the Edomites in our life to force us to depend on him and not on ourselves. Third thing you should remember facing conflict, I know we're pushing the clock, just forget about all that. Uh, particularly prolonged conflict, is that conflict doesn't resolve easily or quickly because they still believe differently than you. Jacob and Esau didn't get along because one was the son of the promise and one wasn't. One settled in the promised land and the other, like Lot before him, voluntarily left the promised land to live in what looked like better lands. They had fundamentally different worldviews. One was centered on self, the other centered on God. And their descendants were just like them. We have thousands of years of biblical history and thousands of years of modern history that demonstrates how you view God will differentiate you from those who see God differently or perhaps don't see God at all. We live in a world, a society, a country that's increasingly divided by what we refer to as the culture wars. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to be opposed by those who refuse to follow him. Some of that conflict will come on moral issues, like the right to life or maintaining a godly sexuality. Some of that conflict will come on religious issues, like the exclusive claims of Christ and the command of Christ to go into all the world with the gospel. Some of that conflict will come on political issues, like the protections in our country that we enjoy under the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Those who hate us will try to remove those protections from us, not from them, but from us. And the thing we have 
to realize, we most have to realize is usually, not always, but most often, these are issues of belief. People believe differently. And the road to reconciliation is the way of sharing new beliefs. That's something that we, as the church, are supposed to be good at. We're supposed to specialize in that. Three things to remember about conflict. There's another application here, a little more personal, largely because it deals with internal personal conflict. Remember that Israel gave in to idolatry first. Their hearts changed before their behavior did. So it's important for us to remember that conflict doesn't change God's standards. Conflict doesn't change God's standards. Remember, Esau has a beautiful family by the world standard. Founder of a dynasty. To be a descendant of Esau in that culture is like being a Ford, a Rockefeller, or a Kennedy in our culture. Esau's sons and grandsons became chiefs and kings. His wives were no doubt beautiful women, as their names indicate. But what they didn't learn was that beauty and success doesn't mean blessing. Beauty and success doesn't mean blessing. Esau's family is outwardly attractive. His wives are beautiful women. They bore him beautiful children. His kids are born leaders, talented and strong. Esau is likable and popular, skilled outdoorsman. There's a big problem, though. God was not part of that family. Esau, the grandson of the godly Abraham, the favorite son of peaceful Isaac, is a thoroughly secular man who lived for the here and now. He's a successful man whose sons and grandsons after him were successful men by worldly standards, but they all failed at what mattered most because they left God out of their lives. The most important thing you can give to your kids is not how to be a success. It's easy to encourage our kids to succeed in the wrong ways, not necessarily bad ways. You know, they can make the team. They could be the homecoming queen. They can score well on the SAT and go to the best colleges and get the best jobs. But if they fail with God, all that other stuff doesn't matter. We need to instill in our kids what's most important. That's a relationship with God. Second standard Esau's life reminds us of is that prosperity doesn't mean blessing. Prosperity doesn't mean blessing. Esau moved east. He was too prosperous to stay near Jacob. And he realized the inheritance is going to Jacob, so he looks for a new place to live. And it's nice for Esau to be so agreeable. But sadly, he has no understanding of God's promises. Ever since God called Abraham, he repeatedly emphasized Canaan as the land he would give to his descendants. But for Esau, any nice land would do. He has no spiritual discernment. He's living for himself. He's materially rich, but spiritually poor. Now, to his credit, he's not greedy. He sees Jacob after 20 years. He declined uh, Jacob's gift. Um, it's possible to be contented and generous people, but still live for material things and not for God. And the danger is that our material prosperity dulls our senses with regard to our desperate need for God. The Lord warned the church in Leesburg, I mean Laodicea, in Revelation 3, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You can't live in the richest county in the richest country in the history of the world and think that this warning doesn't apply to us. American Christians in general who have been so prosperous need to be careful to become rich towards God 
as Jesus says, by laying up treasure in heaven. Finally, third standard, power doesn't mean blessing. Power doesn't mean blessing. Esau, his descendants, men of great power. They're called chiefs and kings. And it's pointedly stated that they reigned as kings before any king reigned in Israel. Critics leap on this verse as proof that Genesis was written after the beginning of the monarchy, 300 years after Moses. But in the chapter before Genesis 35, God had prophesied to Jacob that kings would come from him, just as he had also prophesied that to Abraham back in Genesis 17. And clearly the point is to show that Esau's sons who walked away from God had the distinction of being kings long before Jacob's sons, to whom it was actually promised. Jacob's son were, sons were a nation of slaves at the time that Esau's sons were kings. And Esau's sons could have easily looked at Jacob's sons and said, where is your God and his promises now? Isn't that how often it seems that the world is winning and God's people are losing? And yeah, we'll reign with Christ someday, but meanwhile, the church is persecuted and disregarded by powerful leaders in the world who laugh at God. But we need to remember that political power and power with God are two very different things. The world boasts in its power, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Psalm 2 says the Lord scoffs at him. Daniel 2 says it's the Lord who removes kings and establishes kings. And it's fine for Christian people to be involved in politics, but we have to keep it in perspective. Political power is always subject to him who is the Most High. Daniel 4.17 the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Esau's kingdom, Edom, causes great trouble to Israel. As we've already seen, there's frequent wars between the two nations. There's a repeated emphasis in Genesis 36 that Esau is Edom. And the significance of this otherwise necessary repetition seems to be that God wanted his people to see what results when a man lives apart from him. From this one man, Esau, an outwardly good man, a likable man, a successful man, comes the godless nation, Edom, which plagued the people of God. So God says, remember, Esau is Edom. And finally, the tragic poetry of redemptive history is this. The Edomite race endured until the time of Christ. They were wiped out as a nation, but not as a race before then. So Edom as a country is gone, but the Edomite people still existed in small numbers, but powerful numbers. And in the New Testament, because of the change from Hebrew to Aramaic, they became known as the Idumeans, I-D-U-M-E-A-N-S. And eventually they disappear from history in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman legions. But before that, some famous Idumeans, descendants of Esau, ruled over Israel. Two in particular are worth noting. Herod the Great and his successor, Herod Antipas. They're wealthy, power-hungry, cruel tyrants. It was an Edomite king, Herod the Great, who slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem in his attempt to kill the newborn king of the Jews, as we read in Matthew 2. And it was an Edomite king, Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded and mocked Jesus just prior to his crucifixion. 
In a way, it's a replay of history when the son of Esau, King Herod, who at that time had more prosperity, power, and fame, and the son of Jacob, Jesus Christ, faced each other. And God's side didn't seem to be winning. Jacob's descendant went to the cross and Esau's descendant went home to relax in his luxurious palace. But God would write the final chapter on that history as well. The beginning of the Gospel of St. Luke, we hear the prophecy of Simeon when he holds up the baby Jesus in his arms and says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The great Herod, the son of Esau, is a successful man who went to hell. And Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob, was raised from the dead and is coming again. As we read in Revelation, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the true King. He is the Son of Jacob, the true Son of Israel, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and reigns on the eternal throne of his father David. And he will reign in power and glory as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. These are the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau. And you better know which family you belong to. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, we can be so much like Esau. We can be slaves to our flesh and slaves to our culture. And we sorely want beauty and success, prosperity and power. Even knowing these things have no worth in your eyes. We refuse to love our enemies, hoping merely to defeat them in conflict. We lack mercy and we love idols. We need the grace that leads us to repentance, that leads us to the throne of grace where we can find mercy in our time of need. The grace and mercy that can only come from your son, the king, the true son of Jacob. Thank you that you sent him to be our savior. Thank you that you demonstrated your own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that he reigns on high at your right hand and that he's coming again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we ask in the name.